I think when we're talking about conversion and all that we want to talk about, I think one of the I think the most urgent task in the church right now is to make time to preach the gospel so that John Paul's words can actually take place. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit avemaria.edu slash join for more information. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am thrilled to be joined again by Father John Ricardo, who is the founder and director of Acts 29, Mobilizing for Mission. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Great to be back with you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing my best to advertise for Annunciation Circle right there. I'm going to keep it right <laughs> proudly displayed. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. And I, uh, I love the show we did, and I think it was uh, released in, in the early summer. Uh, and we went through a lot of the rescue project, right. uh, how— you know, and, and the way you've set up kind of the proclamation of the gospel over this nine-part series, uh, it's available at, I think, the rescueproject.org, is that right? Rescueproject.us. Rescueproject.us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd uh, love encourage people to go back and listen to that episode or to go straight to rescueproject.us. And, you know, I wanted to talk today about a couple things because there's some of the things that we discussed then that have actually stuck with me uh, mm. for you know the last six, seven months, and have really helped me to deepen my own, not only understanding of you know the call to mission, the call to the, the gospel, really, right? We recognize in a way that the gospel fundamentally is that God sent his son, so the son is on a mission, and then the father and the son sent his spirit, so mm. the spirit is on a mission, to indwell the church. So the church continues that mission of the Son and the Spirit. And so this sense of mission is not only like practical, it's really the most kind of uh, speculative thing you could say, because really the Trinity itself goes on mission yeah. uh, in creating us and then rescuing us. And so I've loved this idea. And so I wanted to talk today a little bit about just deepening that sense of uh, what is the heart of this proclamation of the gospel? And then take a little bit of time to consider how was it that you yourself in your own story heard that call and responded to it? And then in the last part, I really want to dive into a little bit of this theme of the ongoing conversion hmm. away from idolatry, that these things that we put before God there's a way that they not only limit us, they make us unhappy. Yeah. Not only right. do they take away from God the glory that he is owed, but they really take away from us the satisfaction and peace that God wants to give us. So, yeah. so that's kind of the the structure a little bit. So, but just to dive in. Can I yeah. can I do something real quick? Absolutely. I, you know, even just listening to you, I'm wondering, so this is this is my own experience, maybe it's yours, I don't know. Um maybe as a way to preface this, so we talk about mission all the time. It's our, it's our formal name, mobilizing for mission. Yeah. My experience is most people don't know what the mission is. Yeah. So like every mass ends mm-hmm. with ite misa s. She is sent. Who's the yes. she? She's the church. Yeah. The question is, what is she sent to do? And I think at least the, the typical person sitting in the pew on a Sunday would go, well, I, I don't really know. And and maybe just a simple way to answer that, which I think leads into everything you're talking about, yeah, is two things. The mission's twofold. There's an internal mission and an external mission. And they both have to do with the fact that uh, all the enemy, and there's only one enemy, all the enemy can do is, is twist or deface or mar. He can't create. Only God can create. And our task is to somehow do everything we can to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to bend back into conformity what God created. So the internal mission's holiness. So it's like if I could picture a map of my life, the enemy's flags flying in different parts of my life. And the mission of holiness is to take down that flag and to get the Holy Spirit's flag flying there or the Lord's flag flying there. And then the external mission is 
maybe twofold as well. It's evangelization and it's recreation. So I don't know what you think of this line. I'm, I'm enamored with it. Increasingly so, it's N.T. Wright's language. He says, uh, Jesus didn't rescue us from the world. He rescued us for the world. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so our mission is, is like animated with the heart of Jesus, nourished by his body and blood in the Eucharist, to go out into the world and to do everything we can so as to take back territory for the father who is a good father and not a tyrant. Does yeah. that make sense? Is that right? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. And you know what I love about that idea is that I think sometimes if we think about the, the mission of the church or the, um, you know, the, the call to uh, evangelize, we think about it often in terms of kind of like we think of maybe like our, our business deals, our business operations, these kind of somewhat external things, maybe yeah. getting more people to sign up for things, doing other stuff. And these are not bad things and they need to be done. You need yep. to create activities. You need to sponsor them. You need to participate in them. But this language of really recovering, restoring human community is what is lost in the sin, in sin, yeah, you know, by exactly. Satan and our complicity yeah. with this sense of prideful self-destruction and destruction of the bonds of community between man and woman, between parents and children, between right Cain and Abel, between all of that, what happens is we end up in a state of competition, yeah. a state of rivalry, a state of um, really loneliness, yeah. a state of disconnection. And what the gospel allows us to do is to move from right isolation to communion, from competition into sharing, yeah. where we have restored a new family. Yeah. Right. And so it's about kind of growing in those connections. And I think if we see that a mission to recover connection, communion, cooperation, uh, genuine belonging, kind of both within ourselves and then with other people, then the kind of call to mission is like, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's a new way of being human or the, or yes. the original way of being human, right? Increasingly yes. important right now because we're living in what sociologists are calling the new great depression. Yes. Which is not yeah. economic, it's mental health and depression and anxiety and despair and all that. So- yeah, yeah. It, but, and and I think we've have a there was a 2015 BBC hmm. uh, they did the loneliness experiment. Yeah, I remember that they showed that well, all across the globe, human beings are incredibly lonely, especially the older and the younger. Yeah, I think actually the loneliest generation are like 15 to 30 year olds. And that's what they call them, um, and that's what in a way, a time that ought to be and kind of needs to be for our development needs to be time of kind of developing very strong bonds, mm -hmm. beginning with developing our own bonds within our family as a young, mature adult, yeah. and then also cultivating those with others. And right, and that's something I think that's a great mission. Like, again, to be able to try to respond to that crisis of loneliness and to say, right, not only does God want you to come to know him, God wants you to come to know us, yeah. right? Kind of come you know, that we're, we're going to go through this with you. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. I didn't mean to derail us. I just, no, I, think I, that's I think one of the things yeah. that's so powerful about this is it helps people understand the gospel isn't just relevant to get me to heaven. Yes. It's relevant for right now to make the world more human. I can't yeah. build the kingdom of God. I can't build the city of God, but yeah. I can build mm -hmm. for it and I'm supposed to yeah. build for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that's in a way what we find in our heart, we, we are looking for it somewhere. Yeah. And but we, we we don't know how to get there. And yeah. when we try to follow and you know, and I think we 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 tend to kind of fall into this sense that, well, I'll find that sense of peace and connection when I get my life in order, when I get my finances in order, when I get the right job, when I get the right, you know, spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, and all those sorts of things. And again, we're kind of looking at all this stuff from the outside. And the yep. irony is the more we keep focused on that we stay disconnected. So again, so let's, uh, I, I wanted to kind of go then a little bit into this sense of, right, John Paul II in this great work, Catechesis in Our Time, 
Uh, he says, right, all a catechesis is, is ultimately right coming to help people come to know Jesus Christ and ultimately to come to know Jesus Christ and to turn our lives over to him. Now, within that, though, he makes this, he has this quote where he says, like, the gospel kerygma, the proclamation of the gospel is twofold. Quote, the initial ardent proclamation by which a person is one day overwhelmed and brought to the decision to entrust himself to Jesus Christ by faith. And you spoke about this in our last podcast. And I said, I've been just this constantly comes up of realizing this is really at the heart of our sharing the good news. And it's really the heart of our own deepening our own faith. So maybe just say a little bit about uh, maybe a little bit of how you discovered that phrase in uh, Mm -hmm. John Paul II's writings and how you have dedicated your right priestly ministry to trying to help carry out this proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, I think the the quote is made in 1982, I think, uh, is when he actually wrote uh, that document. And I'm sure I came across it shortly thereafter, or maybe early 90s, but it was brought back to my attention by Archbishop Vigneron in Detroit, Mm. probably in 2013, 14, something like that. And it made me immediately just pause wasn't the right word, more like gasp. Because, and this is how I would say it to priests and do say it with priests now, imagine standing up at a pulpit on any given Sunday in any parish around the country or the world for that matter, but let's think locally, our country, and just saying to everybody, no homily today, I just want to ask you two questions. Question one, how many people here have been overwhelmed by the gospel? And I just don't think many hands would go up. Follow-up question, how many people here have made a decision to entrust their entire life to Jesus and faith? And and I think you'd be doing this. Was that, oh, it's scratching your ear. M- maybe you'd get four or five to that latter question, depending upon the day. I'm not sure if I would answer that question uh, in the affirmative. So um, I think when we're talking about conversion and all that we want to talk about, the I think one of the I think the most urgent task in the church right now is to make time to preach the gospel so that John Paul's words can actually take place. Yeah. Now, you you were mentioning um, when we were speaking a little bit before the podcast that there was a John Paul II had an odd limina visit wait, with some bishops who were yeah, the coming, bishops in Germany who were coming to visit him. And how did he talk about the new evangelization? The new, the new evangelization begins with the clear and emphatic proclamation of the gospel. So we, you know, by now I hope we're familiar with the new evangelization. It's new in ardor, new in method, new in expression. But it begins with the gospel because the gospel, as Paul says, is power. And every time we talk about the new evangelization, it's worth reminding ourselves the old evangelization worked. Like it yeah. really worked. Yeah. Like we date the year to Jesus. Like this is pretty extraordinary stuff. And it worked because the gospel was compellingly proclaimed and it was modeled in the lives of those who were proclaiming it. And I'm not sure that we're doing either one of those very well right now, quite honestly. Yeah. So, and also the sense of the new evangelization is a re-evangelization of cultures that had become Christian, at least in part, an inspiration and have lost or rejected that. Yeah. Um, so that also creates a difficulty, uh, insofar as I think it was Chesterton who in Everlasting Man describes that, um, kind of a post-Christian society thinks it already knows what Christianity is. Yeah. And I think one of the difficulties is that Christianity is such a beautiful thing that it has so many aspects. It's, it's, it's the, it's the new creation. So you recreate buildings, you recreate architecture, you recreate art, you recreate schools, you build schools and hospitals and you, all of this sort of stuff. And so then when people think about the church, they think about all these external things, some of which are beautiful and inspiring and others have legacies that are not beautiful and not inspiring and create yeah. obstacles. Uh, but And this is kind of what it is, or like the church has moral teachings and people think kind of like, well, those moral teachings, either I don't live up to them, so I'm not really that interested in them, or, you know, who are they to judge other people and me especially? So, right. 
But in a way, all of that is secondary to the actual, the heart of gospel, which is, and, and I think in partly, maybe this would be helpful too, is that it's what's the proclamation of the gospel in part, I, and I want you to maybe kind of like expand on this, but it is the good news, right, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. For you. Yes, for me. For you. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so yeah. crucial, right? I mean, so like increasingly so around the country, because we, we just live on the road as missionaries, uh, one of the one of the greatest single needs that we see in everybody, it doesn't matter the age, especially maybe the young, but not just the young, um, is a longing to be seen, like to be known. Yeah. And at the heart of the God, I think it's George Weigel in one of his books, which I've never forgot. He says, you know, the, the, the gospel is this simple. You are, this is the quote, you are far, 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 far more important than you ever dared to realize. And the way we would say it is, you're worth dying for yeah. to God. Like you matter. That's the heart of the gospel to me. Yeah. And so the proclamation of all that the Father has done for us in his Son is that these events didn't just happen like for humanity, because God doesn't see crowds. Yeah. God sees mm -hmm. individual people whom he made in his image and likeness for friendship with himself and with each other. And so God thinks you're so important. I'm so important. I don't know why. Like God loves me <laughs> so much. I don't know why. Because it certainly isn't a reward that he thinks it's worth becoming flesh and going to battle to liberate me from sin and death so that I can actually be loved and love and share in his own life for all eternity. That's not most of people's experience of the gospel. Yeah. So when yeah, we, when, yeah. you know, when, when people go through the rescue project or that when we share the gospel with people, th their response should be something like, why have I never heard this before? And that's not the God I knew growing up. You know, ben Benedict talks about how, uh, you know, to be a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lifestyle. It's the result of an encounter with a person and an event that gives an entirely new orientation yeah. to your life. That hasn't happened for most people. I think it, in a in a sermon he gives on Augustine, he talks about you cannot become Christian by birth, and you can't even become Christian by baptism. You can only become Christian by making a choice or by conversion. And how do you make a choice for someone you've never met? And so our efforts in evangelization are continually got to be about, can I tell you about the one I've met? Who's changed everything for me? Everything. Yeah, that's so beautifully, so 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 well expressed, and in reminds me of Galatians two mm. twenty, mm. Mm -hmm. where Paul says this: "Right, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. But this is the key who line: loved Who loved me and gave Himself for me. Yeah. So." why is it that Paul finds his life totally turned upside down by the appearance of Jesus Christ to him, right? When, uh, on, on, on the road, when he says, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right. right. He discovered that when he was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Jesus Christ. And then what he learned is that the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that pro me for me yeah. is really, I think changes everything. And, you know, you were talking a little bit too about how, why haven't I heard this before? This isn't the God I know. Now, this is just kind of an idea. So feel free to you know push back or to adjust it. Yeah. But the catechism in paragraph 399 says that one of the effects of original sin, I think the effect of original sin that we're used to is that somehow we become wounded, we become disordered. Yeah. Because that's pretty easy to recognize. Yeah. Okay. But we... The other, but the effect that it describes in 399 is that we lose our the proper image of God, and we now have a false image of God. We have a false understanding of who God is. Instead of seeing God as a loving, trustworthy father who would do anything to come and rescue his son and daughters who get lost. Instead, we have a notion of a God who is jealous of his prerogatives, of kind of a tyrannical master from whom when we get in trouble, we should do what Adam and Eve 
did. And which, of course, really is telling us what we do in sin is we hide. Right. Who told you that you were naked? Well, right. I was afraid from God because right. I sinned. And so, and you'll talk to a lot of people, and I've spoken to many people who grow up in a, usually often in a Catholic community, but sometimes in a Christian community, not Catholic. And they will say that they grew up with a very judgmental God. That was what they heard. And what I want to suggest in a way is that what the catechism is actually helping us understand is that that's the image of God we have due to our fallen nature. Mm. We, we ourselves are fallen, and therefore we project upon God a fallen image of God. And so unless we have that corrected, by the clear and ardent proclamation of the gospel, the yeah. clear and ardent proclamation of God as a loving father who has rescued us, we will be in church and we will still have that fallen image of a God who is uh, who doesn't like us, a God who does not delight in us. But of course, this is not actually, it's not in a certain sense what the church is proclaiming. It's that what we in our wounded state are receiving, and of course, sometimes the church may not be proclaiming the gospel well. Yeah. So, just no. Say th- a little bit. Three, what you think three about quick that. thoughts yeah. as I'm listening to you. The first is that's the that's exactly the enemy's temptation. I mean, that is the lie that that the devil says to Adam and Eve. He's not. He's either he's not good, or you can be happier apart from him. That's the root temptation, yeah. and it's really the only play he's got at the heart of every single temptation is that lie spun one way or the other. God is not good. Um, you'd be happier apart from him. And and maybe, to, this might be pushing it somewhat, but maybe um, part of the wound of original sin is that that lie has crept into us yes. in a remarkably mm-hmm. powerful way. Mm-hmm. And I think actually, you know, I, I heard a friend of mine say one time, I think this is true, at least my own experience. Every priest has one homily. That's it. And it's just a variation on a theme. Well, Jesus is the only real priest. And I think Jesus has one homily. And I think his one homily is something like this. You have my father wrong. You don't know him. I know him. And I've come to talk about him, to reveal him, and to make him present to you. So that Jesus can say, when you see me, you see the Father. And we should think of that when we see the cross. But here's the third thing, and this is, this is increasingly important too, that we make sure we get it right, because I think if we don't understand what's going on in the passion accurately, what we do is we go, okay, so we sinned, God got ticked, Jesus steps in, absorbs God's wrath, so now I can get free because the father like beat the crap out of his son. That's not what's happening. No. But that's I'm afraid how a lot of people are understanding the passion that that Jesus is the gentle, kind, gracious, good part of the Trinity. The Father is everything you just described and the Lord absorbs the blow and so somehow I go free because um Jesus steps in and takes the child abuse. So we want to make sure as we talk about this image of God, which is so deeply wounded, that we always remember the Trinity as a Trinity are involved in our creation and our redemption and Yeah, that's so well put. You know, John Paul II would often quote Gaudium et Spes, I think it's 22, Mm -hmm. but where he says, basically, it's only in the mystery of the word incarnate that is man revealed to himself. Yep. And that's the first part that people often say. But as it goes on a little farther, it says, and Jesus does this by revealing to us the mystery of the Father. Yeah. And so we, in a way, I think on the cross, we can see both our sin and our wounds and our inability to fix ourselves. But we see on the cross also the Son's perfect love of the Father. So Christ does for us what we can't do, basically love God amidst suffering, yeah. trust God amidst suffering, which shows our path of healing. And at the same time, God looks at us from the cross as we are killing him, yeah. as we are killing him, and he looks on us with love. Yeah. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so we, in Christ, we see God, the Father's love, 
for us seen through Jesus Christ. And then we also have restored to us in Christ the ability not to curse God or to curse ourselves or to curse our neighbor amidst suffering, but amidst the suffering and brokenness of the world to just trust in God and love. So in a way, the cross, right, is that perfection of love. And I think you're right. And it's only in the cross that we really begin to see, but we have to see the cross truthfully For what it is. that the enemy, yeah. right, is Satan. Yep. Uh, the, the enemy is our complicity with Satan's lies and the willingness to, right, uh, to kind of let Christ speak to us and tell us who the Father really is. I love that idea. You've got my Father wrong. Yeah, you don't right? have, you don't know who he is. And I think it's, and, the, and because we don't know who the Father is, we don't know who we are. Right. Yep. Right. And, and whose we are. Yes, yes. Because yeah. once we begin to recognize whose we are, then in a way, one, we're going to, like, in a way, the, the, the deepest struggles that we go through are just going to be totally transformed when I know that, you know, the God the Father who created me loves me and has a plan for me, right, and gave his son for me, Right, so that I might know His love for me, and so that I might be able to be restored to Him. Uh, so I think any, that's a really that's a it's a great way of trying to kind of unpack a little bit of that. And, and the you know I, I think the root wound for all of us right is um, is identity. So to know this is to be is the first most significant step to healing. You know, um, Ignatius would say, you know, God doesn't so much work linearly. He doesn't go from A to B to C to D. He moves more like a spiral. He finds a topic and he just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. And the topic for like, it is for me, and I think it is for everybody, is uh, identity. Like, do you really know who you are? I mean, somewhat, we, we, we try to hide behind, you know, titles, career, appearances, houses, clothes, body, whatever, right? Um, but all that just melts away when you know who you are. I, I think one of the things that annoys Jesus to no end uh, or annoys the Pharisees about Jesus to no end is he's immovable and he's immovable because he knows who he is. I, I just don't care about your opinion. It doesn't matter to me because I know the Father loves me and that's enough. Imagine to live that yeah. way. I mean, like that's freedom. It's, like it's, I just don't yeah. care what you think of me. Yeah, it's beautiful. In Augustine's De Trinitate on the Trinity, which is fascinating. It's this book of uh, immense kind of uh, erudition, uh, the speculative, really deep dive into the Trinity, but it's also really just a deep dive into what does it mean to experience being human in a fallen and in a redeemed way. And Mm -hmm. one of the things he says is that the problem is that we don't know ourselves because we've forgotten who we are. And he actually says we can't remember who we are on our own. So even, he says, the Platonists who knew a lot didn't know enough because the only way we can really discover who we are is through the incarnation. We have to go through, right, the human nature of Jesus Christ to the divine nature of Jesus Christ in order to recover who the Father is as the one who is the one sending the Son and the Spirit. And so then when we come to know and love God the Father sending the Son and sending the Spirit, we begin to recover our true knowledge of ourselves and therefore the true knowledge of God. But right, and in some ways, right, if we're a mirror, we're only as good as what we're reflecting. Right. And so we need to reflect the communal, eternal love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, I'd love to ask you a little bit about you know your own kind of discovery hmm. of God's call in your life, uh, a little bit maybe of your call to the priesthood, but also how you heard or perhaps were one day overwhelmed, right, by the proclamation of the gospel. And, you know, how did you come to make this decision to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ by faith? So Love to. We'll return in a couple minutes. Sounds great. listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU, 
to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit avemaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I've been uh, so happy to be speaking with Father John Ricardo, founder and director of Acts 29 Project, uh, Mobilizing for Mission. Well so, done. Yeah, so glad to have you here. And Thanks, got the whole mobilizing and mission all in there. I love uh, it. Right, and I love that sense too, by the way. There, there is a sense, you know, we've been talking about a lot of different themes, but just that sense of finding purpose, finding agency, you know, uh, it's just such an age where I think so many people kind of lose that. And even the things they enjoy, they don't know how to, or even the things they value in a way, they don't know how to get connected with, you know, it's, and so I think this idea of, of mobilizing for mission is a really, uh, is, is a, is a powerful idea. Again, becoming restored into this community that has a purpose and, uh, right. Cause when we have a purpose, you know, it's so much easier to go through, the day to day, yeah, right? and and you I know, think so. it's personally it's one of the reasons why I love coming to uh, college campuses, and I love seeing what happens on a college campus when it's done well. Because if you can help a young person at one and the same time have an in- encounter with Jesus, which transforms their life as they're awakening to those gifts that God's given them, so as to go change the world, then they just get catapulted out. Because then they understand how everything integrates, because faith should integrate our lives. What happens otherwise is, okay, I, I, I live a Christian life, and maybe at best I'm ethical in my work, as opposed to, no, 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 no. I want to, whether I'm a doctor or I'm an attorney or I'm a coach or I'm a, I'm a professor, whatever it is, I'm going to do it in such a way that having been in, you know overwhelmed by Jesus, I'm going to do what I can to bend that sphere that I'm involved in back into conformity with how God created it to be. And that's what happens here. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. And that's a good encouragement. Um, I've, I think it's my 23rd year with Avimer University wow. now. And so that's a wonderful, uh, yeah, never, never to take it for granted and to really give thanks each day for the wonderful work we have an opportunity here to do. So tell me a little bit again about your own story. Um, and how did you encounter the gospel how did you make this decision to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ by faith and eventually discerning this call to the priesthood and uh, this later call to uh, be, you know, to help uh, run this uh, project to help people recover the gospel? And Yeah, so the decision's ongoing. Um, so I have a, I have a habit. Uh, which I actually encourage everybody to do, but I, I begin my time of prayer. My, my confessor gave it to me months ago, and I've just done it ever since, of just lying prostrate on the floor, um, just like I did the day I was ordained, and saying to the Lord, present. Because that's what we answer when they call your name at an ordination. It's like, you know, John Ricardo, and you stand up and you go, present, I'm here. And I do that because um, a classmate of mine was asked, few years ago, I'm, I'm 27 years ordained, and he was asked, when did you decide to become a priest? And he said, this morning. Wow, that's powerful. That's a great answer, mm-hmm. right? So so I'm still deciding to entrust my life to Jesus. You know, every day that's a decision. It's it, just like marriage, you know, it doesn't do any good to say, well, I got married such and such a year. You know, like, well, what are you doing today? You know, it's not enough to have the ring. So I pray the surrender novena incessantly, and uh, I think I probably will until I die. And it's a challenge not to just mouth the words, but to actually do it and surrender. So I'm very much at work yeah. in progress. And that has that beautiful line um, of the surrender novena, where if I have it right, you repeat after you say a little bit for each day, and then you say 10 times, right? Jesus, I surrender myself. I had the word entirely, but I surrender myself entirely to you. Take, take care, care of, everything. of everything. Yeah, exactly. Take care of everything. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that really is a great thing. And again, it's that acknowledgement that I can't. So, so uh, you, I, you you grew up. Yeah, I you, think I've. Were I, you exposed to the the Catholic faith? Yeah, my my mom and dad were extraordinarily uh, devout people who went through profound conversions. My mom was Methodist. My dad was Catholic. I have three older sisters and older brother. My parents are passed away, and my brother are passed away now too. But I grew up in a home that uh, I would describe the way John Paul's home was described as one where there was the normalcy of faith. So I didn't know any, I, I, when I went to seminary finally, 
I knew no rituals. I knew no set prayers. I mean, we, we didn't have any of those things. We had no devotionals. My mom and dad just had a a living, vibrant relationship with God. They read scripture constantly. I always saw the word of God out. We talked about God. We prayed spontaneously all the time. And I think I grew up, I'm the youngest in the family, uh, probably with the gift of faith is how I would describe it. Because my earliest memory is of a crucifix. I don't remember how old I was, maybe six, seven years old. I had some traumatic stuff happen in my early youth, and I don't remember much of that. But my earliest really serious memory is of the crucifix and, and looking at it and knowing that happened for me. And like for me, and somehow my life's supposed to be a response to that. Like I, I can remember where I was in the church, everything. Um, it would be great to be able to tell you, like, from the moment of that encounter, I just, like, walked with Jesus, and it's been this steady upward crescendo to sainthood. Uh, such has not been the case. But I, I grew up, I've prayed as long as I've been conscious. Like, I've just had a friendship with God. Uh, not always a faithful one, but I've had a friendship with God. And then I had a, I had a couple of really powerful experiences. I had a very powerful experience when I just got out of college. I went to the University of Michigan. Um went through a real deep conversion there, or began it there, I should say. And I remember being in my car one day, and I had just come home from telling my dad, who's my hero, that uh, he was trying to help me get a job in all these different places where he had great connections. And I went home to tell him, you know what, I don't think I'm going to take one of those if they offer it to me. I'm going to stay in this community of guys that I've met, and I think I'm going to work in a little co-op and bake bread. So it's kind of like saying to your dad, hey, thanks for the 150 grand you just shelled out. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life, but these guys have helped me meet God and I need to live with him. And my dad, to his everlasting credit, said, son, whatever you do, I will bless. Uh, you could be a priest and I'd bless it. And I'm like, dad, I don't want to be a priest. I was in a serious relationship with a woman at the time. And I'm driving home. And as I'm driving home, it was the first time in my life I had ever made a decision for God that cost me. Like I could feel like, ooh, okay, there's some, there's some weight to this decision to give my life to you. And I just started to weep, not to cry. I mean, to weep, like I couldn't see as I'm driving. And as I'm sitting there, um, I don't know what to describe this as. So I'll just tell you, like, I, I see Jesus sitting next to me in the car like I see you. And he just looked at me. And I, I have no, no idea how long this lasted. And as he looks at me at a certain point, he, t he stretches out his hand and he sticks it into my chest. And he said, um, and he grabbed something. And he said, John, these are all your dreams and all your goals and all your desires and everything that you want to do with your life. And then he pulled it out and he just tossed it out the window. And he said, I'm going to give you my dream and my goal and my desire and what I want you to do with your life. And then he was gone. Again, you would think the response to that would be like run to the church and like surrender to God. I, I did a total Jonah. Like I just went to, I went to Tarshish as opposed to going to Nineveh and spent the next year just living like a yo-yo Praying every day, but not living like somebody was praying every day. And I was, uh, I was working at the time, and uh, I was restless as all get out with my life. All I knew was I wasn't happy. Like, I wanted more. I think every, every man, I can only answer for men, every man wants to do something great with his life. And I knew I wasn't doing something great with my life. So I was going to go back to school to get a, another degree. I didn't want to get another degree. I didn't want money. I wanted meaning. That's what I wanted. I wanted purpose, right? And so I'm walking around, uh, I would bring my Bible with me to, to work. I wasn't going to church, but I would bring my Bible with me to work. And I was walking around at lunch, and I opened up to um, Matthew 19, where Jesus says, uh, some men are born incapable of marriage, some men are made incapable of marriage by others, some men make themselves incapable of marriage for the sake of the kingdom. He who can accept it should accept it. And I threw my Bible on the ground. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. What does that mean? And like I hear the hum in this room, I heard a voice just say to me, John, I'm inviting you to live single and to do it as a priest. 
So I don't go to church. I, I, I knew maybe two priests my whole life that I thought anything of. Like I knew nothing about priesthood. Didn't want to be a priest. And I said that to the Lord. I said, Lord, if that's really you, you got to give me a desire for it because I don't have a desire for that. I want a, I want a family. And I think that was a Tuesday. I think I woke up Thursday that week and knew, like, as I've known nothing in my life, I knew, <laughs> I think God created me to be a priest. I don't know what you do. I don't know where you go. I don't know how long it takes. But I think I was just told what I was supposed to do. It was as if I was walking that direction and someone tapped me on the shoulder from behind and said, what you're looking for is actually over there. And I turned around and I went, wow, I'll be. And, I th and maybe, I, maybe because I was the way I was growing up, I didn't think you, you just like decided to become a priest. I, th I thought you had to get invited. So maybe that's why God invited me. I don't know. That, that's, that's where... Everything happened. Now the wrestling match continues, right? Because Augustine talks about there's there's two conversions. There's a conversion of the intellect and there's a conversion of the will. Well, my intellect got converted pretty quickly. Like I knew God was real. I knew Jesus was Lord. Uh, my will is still very very much in the process of undergoing conversion. Um, but I I love that passage from Galatians that you read because that that's very much. Philippians, he talks about, like, I strive to take hold of the one who has taken hold of me. And that, that's very much how I feel. You know, like, I feel like the Lord just grabbed me. And now to, to fight against him is to fight against happiness. Yeah, I love that image of the per, the, that it's faith in a person. This is so obvious in the gospel, right? that it's believe in me. Jesus Christ, you know, and then believe in, you know, the one who sent me, yeah. right, the Father. So um, we have this element. And yet, you know, just think, it's just like you're so excited to see someone at Christmas when you haven't seen a loved one for a while. Yeah. Or when you get to see someone, you're so excited. Uh, well, it's like that's the attitude we should have about going, right, to heaven. You know, it's getting to see the one whom I have loved and mass. who has loved me so much more. Yeah, going to Mass, getting Prayer. to Yes, yeah, absolutely. Like every day getting to develop this personal relationship with right our Lord, this friendship with Jesus Christ, not only in his divinity, but also in his humanity. I love the kind of the fact that the, you know, G kind of Jesus appeared to you in his human nature so that you could kind of see him and smell him and touch yeah. him. And, yeah. uh, and I also love just the beautiful honesty in that story as well. The, the slowness with which we often respond to these things. It might take us a year after yeah. something, you know, and, and, and I think seeing that in our own lives, that it often took us a while uh, to come to faith, and it takes us a while to come to a deeper faith, uh, is also one to be patient with other people Amen. and to encourage people to be patient. Yeah. So that even when we have this kind of ardent proclamation of the gospel and help people to bring them to the decision that, that that decision may or may not be able to happen, you know, like that night, that week, right. that month, that right. year, right. perhaps that decade. I don't, you know, like we, but you, but you do know at some point when you've made it yep. and when you've made it, uh, you get that sense of peace, yeah, right? Because in a way then, you know, that whatever else happens, right? I don't have to kind of follow uh, these kind of somewhat false and empty promises of the world. You know, and, and I think that's in a way what a lot of people, and at least I can speak for myself, especially, I think growing up, I had a certain sense of these uh, false promises of the world. Um, if you make money, you'll be happy. But it turns out it's actually hard to figure out how to make money. Like, which, you know, how do you do it? And it seems awfully risky. There's no sure way. Yeah. Uh, even the American dream is like, oh, own a home, have a little family. Well, those are actually pretty hard. What if you can't do that? Yeah. You know, and you can't realize, well, what is, what, what a silly dream. Like what a silly dream to like own property or to have, I mean, these things are not bad. I mean, I understand why yep. we dream them, yep. but like, these are just sometimes out of our control, yeah. right? You, you become very well, uh, you know, you go, you go into a field and you're good at it, but it becomes obsolete in, now what? in five years. Yeah. Well, just not going to happen. Or, yeah. you know, you have a yeah. global recession or a global 
inflation. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, and you realize, wait a second, maybe I had the wrong dream. Yeah. Right. And so it's this kind of idea of like recognizing things. So maybe we could talk then a little bit about this other theme as you talk about in the rescue project, as you move towards kind of the end of the story, which is both mission, but also kind of discovering that in our heart, we have actual, like, we're not fully committed to God. We have kind of idols that we build up. And uh, I think the word, you know, idol is just so unfortunate because it names something that is pervasive. And so if we could only see it, it would help us find happiness, find meaning and purpose. But idols, so seem very Old Testament. Golden calf. I don't worship golden calves, right? You know, these sorts of things. So, but the book of wisdom in chapter 14 says this, the worship of idols not to be named is the beginning and cause and end of every evil. So in that sense, if, okay, if the book of wisdom says that this is the beginning, cause and end of every evil, and you can also put there every frustration, every, every, um, everything that kind of harms us, makes us unhappy, and turns us away from the only one who can make us happy, right? So tell me, like just in kind of simple terms, right, what's an idol and how can I kind of see them in my life and then how can I learn to, right, you know, uh, kind of combat them, turn them over to God? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so a couple thoughts come to mind. The, first, the best description of an idol I've ever heard comes from Timothy Keller, who just passed away not too long ago in a book he wrote called Counterfeit Gods. And he says, uh, an idol is anything more important to you than God. And then he goes, yeah. it, it, which should immediately yeah, make you go, more, oh, no. nuts. Like, yeah. like a, a whole set of things are coming to mind, right? Yeah. Um, anything... Um, you look to give you what only God can give you. Anything so important to you that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. That's so powerful. Hit, so hit pause right now yeah. and just think about that. Anything more important to you than God, anything you look to give you what only God can give you, anything so important that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Could be my children, could be my reputation, could be my health. I mean, these are all good things. But we, so we quickly can put things out of order or get things out of order, right? Lewis was fond of saying like, first things first, like God first and then everything else afterwards, right? So that's the first thing. So lest we think we don't have any idols, just ponder that for a while. And I, unfortunately, I can fill up pages of what fits into those categories, at least some days for me. The second thing, and you, you might be able to shed light on this that I don't have. I, I, I've never forgotten this. In fact, I just went back and looked at this the other day. I had a, a, a fantastic woman professor when I was in seminary um, in Italy. And I think my Italian was good enough to understand what she was saying. And I went back and looked at her, the notes I had, and, uh, but I don't read Hebrew. And she was saying that there is at least a way of understanding the first commandment that goes like this. You shall not make um, a a molten image, a molten image for yourself. And not just you shall not bow down and worship it, but you shall not let it make you bow down and worship it. In other words, there's something in that commandment that the Lord gives that says, you only bend your knee to me. Because when you do that, it's actually not degrading. It's actually fulfilling because it's right. It's just, it's proper for you to worship me because I created you and I love you. And so the, the I'm not asking you to worship me because I'm some thrill-seeking egomaniac. I'm, worship, I'm asking you to worship me because that's good for you. It's the right thing to do. Everything else that tries to get me to bend its knee or bend my knee is not interested in my fulfillment. It's interested in my slavery. And I, I can think of, you know, I'm thinking of countless people. I'm thinking of a friend of mine right now who's a crack addict who, who knows in his mind, I will never physiologically be able to replicate the high that I first got. And yet, 
I will do everything I can to get another hit. This, this thing has made him bend his knee to it, you know? So that's the second thing that comes to mind. The third thing is, I forget who it is who said this, but he was talking about mission. And he says, the reason we do mission is because God is not worshipped. Which I just love the simplicity of that. Which means, it's not like people aren't worshipping anything. It's they're worshipping the wrong thing. And if I'm not worshipping God, I won't be happy. And so we want to we lead people to the Lord because to, to come into an encounter with him is to be genuinely happy, fulfilled, right? Um, which is not their image of God, of course. So their worship, it's not that people aren't worshiping, they're worshiping the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong whatever, and only God deserves our worship. And so we want to go on mission because we want to, the, the, the core wound of the human person is idolatry. That's, that's what's wrong with me. Yeah. I'm giving reverence to something that's not God. Yeah, there's a, I don't remember who it was, but somebody described human beings not as homo sapiens, but homo adorans, mm-hmm. oh, the, yeah. the, the adoring yeah. Uh, one. Yeah. And right, we do worship. And in this worship, the question is, right, when we worship created things, they cannot save us. Yeah. Because they are part of the fallen created order. Yeah. And it's... It's that simple. We have to be restored. And they're cruel uh, and they're demanding. And God yeah. is neither. Yes. Oh, he might be demanding, yes. but he's not cruel. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And it's almost in a way they become cruel, yeah. even if they themselves are not, when we begin to worship them. And, you know, uh, right, you know, whether or not this is a a, a loved one, uh, a family member. Yeah. Right? If I love them, as you put it, so much so that, you know, um, life is hardly worth living without them. Well, I will live without them. I mean, I, my, I will die or my family will die. This is a, and I don't make light of this. This is right. One of the hardest things that many people have to bear. Right. Uh, and, and yet it's still one of those things that we have to recognize that my loved one can never raise them back. My loved one cannot raise me back, yep. but God can raise me because God has raised his son. There's that beautiful line from Romans 8, 11, where it says that, right, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And so, like, that gives me hope amidst death and suffering. And it's not fair in a way to burden my loved ones with hope, with that deepest hope in my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory has just this one line that I just love when he talks about there are things in the world that are good images of what we really desire. Yep. His beauty, music. He loved, right, you know, the northernness in Ireland and then in England, uh, other people, right, you know, grandchildren now for me, right, children, all sorts of different things, parents, right, whatever it is, uh, these beautiful things. But he says, they are images of what we really desire. Think about it. Actually, this is what the Bible tells us, that the world is actually not, it's supposed to be iconic. Yeah. It's supposed to reveal God. Other people are supposed to be images of God. So when I see you, when I see my loved one, I see, whoa, there's a little reflection of God. There's a little reflection of God. And, and so he says this, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols that break the hearts of their worshipers. And that's just where I, I just love it. It's like, you know, the, these things are good. Yeah. And so one of the things we do then with this proclamation of the gospel is we restore the world from being an idol to becoming an icon. So the world now can be like Jesus Christ is, the, as Colossians 1.15 says, he's the, the true image, but the, the Greek is God. icon. Yep. Becomes the icon of the invisible God. Yeah. I, so, I think you said something, too, that's really yeah. important just to stress, because, again, this has to do with our image of God. Like um, the people will try to diagnose the problem, and and sometimes people will say, uh, and some philosophies or religions will say that the problem is you desire. So the the solution, therefore, is to eliminate desire. You can't get something farther from Christianity. The the problem is not desire. The problem is you're not desiring enough. Yeah, you're you're content with that which actually doesn't satisfy, and so to to see the world and creation as an icon, and then it also as a gift, like the Father just says, like, this is yours. Like, everything I have is yours. I'm a generous Father who loves to give, you know, he pours gifts on his children while they slumber, the Psalms say, 
right? And so to, to sort of see creation this way as opposed to something that, you know, we either exploit, don't care about, or aren't supposed to enjoy. It's like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to love creation. That's why we care for it. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I just reread The Weight of Glory um, over the weekend again. I just, like my favorite essay, I go back to it at least once a year. And I love that image. And then he goes on to say, like, so, to imagine, so what would it be like to actually get into those things? Because that's, that's the, one of the ways he describes yeah. entering into the kingdom is it's not so much that the things in the world are what you want. They're icons of what you really want. But one day we're actually, we're going to enter into the beauty that they are iconic of. And that's the kingdom. And it's like, whoa, that just, yeah, that blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's that beautiful line, right? We, uh, our Lord doesn't find our desires too large, but too small. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with uh, money, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, yeah. right? Even Psalm 16 at the very end says, you show me the path of life, right? The path of life who is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the path of life has, you show me Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? I don't think most people think of God at all. Like that fullness of joy, yeah. pleasures, God, are we talking about the same person here? Yeah. So it is this deep sense. I think in some ways, maybe then, you know, your, your, that, that quote from uh, Dr. Tim Keller was that sense of, right, you know, what do we love more than God? Uh, what are those things that we right, think about or um, we maybe like obsess about, mm-hmm. right? You know, and then what are those things, if we were to lose them, our, you know, life would barely be worth living. Uh, I think it's a great kind of call for us then to, it's in a certain sense to really just to discover, yeah. kind of take a little time for meditation, time, prayer, write down those things, yep. right? What are those things? And then kind of just, Look at them honestly, like, Lord, help me to see them. And if we could see them in a way as God sees them, yep. uh, there's a, you know, sometimes it's like when you're in the picture, you can't see the picture Yep. and you have to get out of that birds, the worms view of yep. the world to yep. the birds. I view of the world to recover in a way. Uh, there's a, there's a quote that I remember, I don't remember where it came from, but somebody shared it with me. It's like, only when we suffer the unbearable do we learn to love as God loves and see as God sees? And mm. I think ultimately that really is because it's only if we suffer the unbearable with the one who suffered yeah, and with the hope of the one. And then really Christ gives us his mind in his spirit. So we begin to see the world as Christ sees the world. You, you'd yeah. asked about how do you move? Yeah. I, I may, I'll give you a really earthy example. So I love college football. Uh, I love college football and I have a particular love for um, certain teams and one in particular who at a, my, my, my prayer during football season is this, this is how disordered this is for me because it can be so idolatrous. I have to pray, Lord, teach me how to enjoy this as a game. Like restore to me the ability to just enjoy it. I love that. Because yeah. Because for, there was a, a time in my life where I couldn't actually watch the game because if they didn't win, my day yeah. and my week would be uh, ruined, wouldn't be too strong a word, depending upon yeah. how old I was at the time. But I, I'm talking about even as a priest, like it, it would have a control on me. I'd be less charitable, less patient, less kind. And so th- that's something that is, was make, it's a good thing, but it had made me bow down and worship it. And so I have to pray, Lord, and we can do this with children. We can do this yeah. with spouses. We mm-hmm. can do it with anything. Lord, teach me again and give me permission again and give me the grace to, again, just to enjoy the gifts you've given to me as gifts and not God's. Wow. That's great. It, um, uh, there's a line also from the Book of Wisdom, which talks about the worship of idols, the beginning, cause, and end of every evil. In 13, it says this, though. If it was through the delight in the beauty of created things— hmm. Men assumed them to be gods. Let them know how much better than these is their Lord, for the author of beauty created them. And I love that sense of going back to God and saying, teach me how to right, love my family well. Teach me how to enjoy a game as a game. Yeah. Uh, there was a prayer also that uh, a friend of mine shared with me once, uh, when, uh, which I think sometimes can speak to the, the familial heart or the tendency to it's it's hard not to love. I think in some ways we don't ever want to love our families less. We just need to love God more. Yeah. 
Right. Uh, but this prayer, which is that, uh, you know, Lord, before they were mine, they were yours, and I put them back in your hands. Yeah. Uh, and how silly to think that our hands are big enough to hold to hold ourselves, right? We got to throw ourselves into God's hands. So, yeah. well, Father John Ricardo, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Great being with you. Um, I, I love that deeper sense of re-encountering, mm-hmm. right? The proclamation of the gospel, right? Uh, allowing ourselves maybe to be overwhelmed again, right? By what Jesus Christ has done for us to die and rise again for me, as we discussed, right? Uh, that's a, uh, thank you so much for sharing your own story of your own discovery of that and making that decision and reminding us that we have to make that decision to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ by faith every day, according to our baptismal vocation, whether it's a priestly or a marriage vocation or our vocation as a confirmed, right? Uh, confirmed really saint in the church, right? Amen. Holy one in the church. And then also this aspect in which maybe we can uh, look a little bit at what are some of the idols in our life and when do they become dumb idols that break our hearts and when can we restore them in a way to being just good icons, yeah. good little things that God has created, maybe some of the most beautiful things you could ever imagine, but God is infinitely more Better. beautiful. Hmm. Uh, so uh, again, thank you so much for all you're doing with the Acts uh, 29, Mobilizing for Mission project. Uh, people that are interested can find uh, the the nine-part series at rescueproject.us. Correct. And uh, where would they find more about Acts 29? Acts29.org. Just make sure you spell 29 in Roman numerals. So A-C-T-S-X-X-I-X.org. Yes. And for those who are interested, there is an earlier podcast with Father John Ricardo. Uh, so please take uh, a look at that. And uh, thank you again for being with us during the show. If you found what you heard helpful, uh, please consider uh, liking the show. Please consider recommending it and sharing it with friends and family and helping us to reconnect and restore relationships and ultimately restore right, our relationship and our knowledge of the truth of, of who God is and Amen. his plan for us. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.